Welcome to Machine Learning. This has been an interesting week, lots of work, and uh, uh, I've started using Visio quite a bit to explain process because I started to realize that if I want to expand what I, I do for as a programmer, I need to have process. And uh, the way I, I create process is I, I start to communicate the way things are done in the company and then uh, writing that up for people that can actually make decisions to build things. So as um, projects are being created and scopes are created and so forth, that uh, process has to be uh, designed and built and it has it comes through human organization. So the way human organization works is that you establish roles and then you explain the interaction between those roles and then you start to create automation that helps define those processes. And so as we've talked about in the past, as things become more sometimes more complex it there's this desire to simplify things, but within the complexity, it creates a great deal of flexibility. And so um, working to build complex systems is desirable because of the flexibility. And one of the flexibilities that you have is the ability to get your information. So... In some companies, they invest heavily into teams that build web APIs um, that can be consumed as endpoints by developers. And uh, then the organization then can do the transactions through these endpoints. And that, that creates for a lot of flexibility, both within the company and external to the company. And so uh, there's this continual expansion of, of functionality that exists. Well, and as you expand this functionality, your, your library set gets larger. And, uh, and that, that, that creates for that creates for a lot of uh, power within your company. Okay, so that was my new strategy, and that's why I've been, you know, jumping on the Visio and doing some of the diagramming and so forth. Is that it helps? Uh, it helps explain the the process. And users are often asking me, you know, do we need to have a meeting to sit down and talk, you know, and I'm like, no, we don't need to, because I can uh, I can do a lot of the uh, functionality myself. Um,
and uh, um, and and uh, be able to uh, uh, document that process. So that, that's one of the other things that I'm spending more of my time in, is documenting process. And I think that's, that's going to be valuable in the long run because eventually companies have to have the analysis to make things uh, run smoother. At the same time, they need to have project management to figure out what to build. And the project management needs to understand how the analysis can be used to create things of value for the company. And what are the company's objectives and goals? And then try to work to build systems that support those company objectives and goals. Otherwise, what you have is you have some individual who is deciding the, what is valuable to the customer and not, and not necessarily addressing a process. So I think the process is something that is quite a bit bigger. Uh, you build more complex systems around that process, and that gives you that visibility into the company so that you can understand what's actually happening. And that's that's one of the things that I've uh, seen is that we're, is the ability to, to look inside the company and see what's happening has not really doesn't exist, and so uh, these are these are things that I've been thinking about and working process and keep trying to communicate. And a lot of times it's hard to communicate because you have to have someone that's capable of listening to you. But as I I've, I've done this, I've started to think well. It's okay because you're starting to learn a skill, an important skill, which is how to communicate uh, a particular process that could be valuable to a company. And so, uh, along with process comes uh, comes resources, and uh, you know you can get more uh, build a team with uh, a, a good set of processes. That team building is also really critical to one's success and getting the right individuals on that team that will uh, work together to help support the company so that you can be successful. And I've I've noticed that even with my daughter is that She's really great at building teams and um, expanding functionality for the company. And she's really great at um, getting the team to work well together. And she's very good at analyzing the dynamic of that team. And so, you know, these are things that are very valuable in my mind. And I've told her, you know, that one of the most important things that you do is build teams. And so that's a that's a great uh, quality that she has is team building. 
not necessarily just confidence, but team building and helping others to realize their importance to the organization and to her team. Well, okay, so one of the other things I've noticed too is this week is the, the value of GPT-3. I'm really liking the aspects of GPT-3. For example, I we I was talking, asked a couple of questions that are coming from the list of software site, and uh, one of one was uh, about the monitors uh, policies that Japan has employed, which is either the strengthening or weakening of the yen to improve imports or uh, or to improve the amount of exports that the Japanese manufacturers are able to to achieve. And what it said was GPT-3, we said that Japan had adopted a Keynesian philosophy to economics, which was that uh, it would use quantitative easing to help stimulate the Japanese economy. Well, what did Keynesian economics do for the economy? It put Japan into a prolonged deflation and or a depression. And so it was not a effective remedy to a slowdown in the Japanese economy. It actually did more damage long term. Well, in 2008, what do we do? We do quantitative easing. That's where we, we hear that term. But that had been done in Japan since the 80s when Japan was experiencing rapid inflation due to the minister MITI policies and as a result there was a real estate bubble that occurred in Japan and prices got really expensive and then the prices never came down as a result of the quantitative easing and you just had this low attrition that started to set in where the big companies really were the only ones that could survive that um, the government policy that you had this huge amount of savings that we've talked about in those postal accounts trillions of dollars where the Japanese government borrowed against that and through um monetary policy then did the quantitative easing. So quantitative easing is a bad approach to solving any problem. And usually it's triggered by a financial crisis. In the example of two, in 2008 was a subprime meltdown, which then we started to hear the Fed introduced the idea of quantitative easing for by the central banks for 
the banking industry. And we then discovered that the banking industry was financially unhealthy according to the their metric for risk. And it was interesting because the banks had never been evaluated like this by the Fed before. And they had they're highly regulated, but yet these metrics for financial health had never been applied publicly uh, in some form of accountability to banks that were being reported. And what was strange about that act was that the bank's parent could be evaluated as financially unhealthy, and even though it had healthy subsidiaries, those subsidiaries were classified as financially unhealthy. And so there was this um, re-evaluation of risk across everything, and there was these uh, penalties being attached to healthy banks that shouldn't have applied. Well, I uh, I think that that was uh, an interesting move by the the Fed. And then they 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 review who you are, and then 
they have you withdraw that that money, and they will then dispense the money in a large large bill. So it is a it is a a, a painful process to withdraw a large amount of money, and, and the reason they do that is for protection of of uh, depositors against fraud. And they can also attach a fee for that withdrawal, I believe. Now, you'd have to check with your bank uh, to see if that's true. But I believe that they can. They can't charge you a fee for a small withdrawal, but I believe they can for a large. And I'm not sure about the exact amount. And, uh, but yet, you know, when you look at the amount of cybercrime that's going on and the way that the cyber criminals are operating, they often trick people into making deposits and then they go and make withdrawals from those deposits. And they, they get, they, you know, they're, they're discovered, the, the plot is discovered, but sometimes it's discovered after the fact that they do actually capitalize on some of this money. So the banks then are going to stronger extremes to protect the consumer against withdrawal, early withdrawal. Now, can, let's say there was a run on the bank and large number of consumers are concerned about their assets in the bank and they begin their do their withdrawals. If the bank does not have complete amount of money to cover all of the withdrawals, they can close their doors and uh, reopen them at a future time when federal deposits or insurance money arrives that allows them to make those payments. And so, you know, your funds are federally insured, and that that is a safety net for a few banks, but possibly even all banks, because what the they could happen if there was a large run is that the the Fed could cover all of those uh, withdrawals through a transfer of money from the Treasury. And so the banking institution uses this fractional reserve to take money that's been deposited and invest that into loans and other growth-oriented investments. And they may even, in some cases, invest into bullion, which would be uh, gold stored in London or Switzerland. And uh, sometimes in people that hold large amounts of gold can put those gold reserves into banks and hold them for storage like as HSBC does.
Okay, another thing that seems to be happening is the price of silver. Now, price of silver has been relatively cheap. It's not been moving with the price of gold. And that, that becomes a uh, risk factor as uh, the there could be exist a silver slam, meaning that the price of silver suddenly adjusts upward to the amount of of uh, supply that exists. And during high inflation, supply begins to decrease because the cost of mine operations increase. So there's a slowdown in the amount of production rather than an in, uh, increase in the amount of production of silver. And also one of the factors would be as China gets more imports or exports and they become a more wealthy country, then they would seek to um, consume silver as a asset protector, and they place orders for silver. And so just like we saw the prices of metal go up, reuse recyclable metal, where China was consuming lots of our salvaged metals, and then they would grind them up and, and then ship it off by truck, and then and eventually by ship container back to China, which would then be used to um, build things like automobiles. That China will also start to consume more silver, and as the amount of silver um, is then allowed to be purchased by Chinese, by the Chinese government, that the price of silver will rapidly climb upward. Now, banks and financial institutions don't like silver to climb because um, it is used as a metric of inflation. But there's going to be a strange oddity if silver remains artificially low, is that inflation is known to be six to seven percent and yet silver prices have remained flat and so even though it would seem that they adjusted up from maybe ten dollars an ounce to now uh, 23 or 24 dollars an ounce they will quickly escalate upwards as the announcement that silver prices are artificially low. They, and at that point, they, there is a bargain. And so there would be a, a rush to consume that silver. And I see more of that. It's very difficult for um, me to find silver that I can make purchases. And I pay a way above spot price for the silver that I am able to find. 
And so that scarcity tells me that there is a lot of demand already, and the, these main channels where you can buy it on the Internet may be due to uh, large inventories that were purchased by uh, corporations where they had bought a lot of silver at a certain spot price, and they have an inventory, and then they're working to create a market, so they sell it at a discount price, almost like a sale, to increase the consumer consumption of the silver, but they actually know that at some point, when those inventories have been depleted, that they will have to adjust their price, but they now have a market of consumers that are bought, buying silver and then they can market these consumers to the new adjusted price. And that's the way you, you get uh, build a, a market is by offering something of value and then repeating that, those offers over time. Well, I uh, looking forward to, to this upcoming week. Been real busy. Looking forward to um, getting some uh, new games built. I was actually looking at a game called Sudoku, and it, uh, it, it, what it does is you have not a, a, a list of numbers from 1 to 9, and you're moving vertically and horizontally along that path. And you have 81, number, or 81 numbers or 9 rows and 9 columns, and you want to place that so that they're all unique along the row and the column so it doesn't repeat those numbers and you're given a, a set of seed values and then from there you figure out the states that you need to do in order to figure out how things are placed in or the numbers are placed in what cell and it is quite a challenge to do this and uh, we we did that Sudoku last night, and I watched how that was done. And my wife does it quite a bit, but I I I've never really jumped in there and and uh, learned it. But now I'm thinking, well, what? How can I build a a game that's similar to Sudoku, um, where you you're looking at different possible states, and then trying to figure out through deduction how those states would fit. And that was kind of the challenge that I was thinking about. And so um, I've started to ponder about how to create a game that could be fun where you're trying to figure out just sequences of numbers that could work and that could be useful 
that, you know, and so one of the games I, I liked was the Logic game where it's similar to Sudoku where you're given a, a set of sentences and based on those sentences you figure out um, what can be the answer by deduction. So you're trying to figure out, like, conclusions or facts that can be reasoned by things that are known. Like, for example, you know, uh, maybe part of the matrix is people and what they're wearing, colors, and what they had done as an occupation. You know, so you you can read the sentence and you say, okay, Jane was wearing a red jacket, so you can mark that off. But what does that tell you about the other candidates, what they could be wearing? And you might have multiple possibilities per um, person of what they could possibly be wearing. And then maybe by figuring out what their occupation was, you can deduce that one person's occupation was maybe a baker, but that that would imply that the other ones could be a carpenter, and maybe one of the carpenters was wearing a red jacket, so it couldn't be the person that was wearing the blue jacket, so the only person wearing the red jacket might be Jane so you can mark that off. And then by getting a sequence together, you can then infer some possibilities um, that they could be in terms of an answer. And then you could try the different combinations to see if they work. And that and that state thinking is real critical for figuring out sequence that work inside of a complex system. That deductive reasoning and inference. And you know, I saw that in Sudoku when I was watching how um, it was played as I was watching the reasoning power that was going on and it was really good. And I was thinking, well, you know, that's a lot like the way the machines operate is they use reasoning power to uh, figure out possible combinations. So a machine can, using different rules of state deduction, solve a Rubik cube. How does it do it? It would have to do it by remembering previous state and state combinations and possibly use reinforcement learning to discover rules that work. Uh, that would could be one approach. And another approach could be using a form of state mathematics where you're using a graph theory to... Uh, traverse different possible states 
and then looking for those sequences that um, will accomplish a goal, like getting moving one color from one position to another. And there's different techniques for doing that. Once you discover the sequence, then you can you can quickly solve the Rubik's cube uh, by memorized sequences of moving colors from one state to another. And a lot of it was mechanical sequencing, like turn left, turn up, turn right, and then see where it moves the, the state. So you you could you could somewhat by concentration figure out how to move a color um, to a state and then restore back all the other states to their previous state. So you're you're moving one state, one of the colors in sequence to a different position but then returning back every, all the other colors back to their previous state. So you isolate the movement. And that that was something that then when you realize that you can do that by doing these sequences and then returning back to the original sequ uh, state for all the other objects, then you can manipulate the Rubik's cube to a solution, and then so there was different sequences for moving the the uh, color from the top to the bottom, or different sequences to moving from the left to the right, and you kind of worked down through the different layers of the Rubik's cube until you had solved the whole Rubik's cube. And it's really quite an amazing feat because if you don't have that strategic approach to solving the Rubik's Cube, it's impossible to do because it's so many different combinations. It can't randomly be sequenced together. And I think that's what's going to be happening with biologic biology is that, you know, we've had kind of this random approach to trying to discover drug therapies and solving disease. And as a result, we really have been very unsuccessful in um, in solving disease. But if we can utilize these sequences, and AI can solve these problems of sequencing with the DNA and the enzymes, and it can model and learn from the three-dimensional molecules and then run through large number of sequencing and trying to find those combinations by isolation of enzymes or amino or yeah enzymes that it could utilize to produce the desired results we could solve uh, diseases and not just one or two but possibly all diseases. Well, then the question is, is what about COVID? Can we solve COVID? And 
yeah, I think so. Because you, you could solve cancers, you could solve birth defects. And so everything now would move from the scalpel to molecular engineering and, and molecular therapies. That was kind of the promise in the early 90s of biotechnology is that you could create these wonder drugs. But uh, I think the problem was, is you know, they, the ideas were there, the theories were there, but the compute power wasn't. And today we have the compute power and, you know, it's increasing. You know, whether it's an a optical computer that's running, you know, maybe 10x times faster on the AI learning models, or it's a massively parallel processors that you apply billions of processors to do work in parallel. These solutions are creating some amazing results. And so even though we don't see it, it is starting to form. And eventually the, these small startups that are are punching through into these uh, breakthroughs will either be absorbed by the bigger companies and uh, their innovation suppressed, or they will uh, be able to bring these therapies and these discoveries into the medical community and a new era of medical molecular therapies will begin to be discovered. And, and maybe in the future, the doctors will work with AI expert systems to help explain how these molecular therapies can be applied and what the desired effects will be. And just like if you had a particular sickness, like, for example, polio, and you are then able to take a, a, a vaccine and solve the problem of polio, uh, you could view these molecular therapies as uh, very similar to that, is that you have arthritis, and you get diagnosed either by an expert system offline on, on the Internet where it's looking at your symptoms and correctly diagnosing the disease that you have at nearly 100%. Or you, you manage to go into a doctor and the doctor inputs your uh, symptoms into the expert system, then it, it correctly diagnoses it, and then you run tests to verify that you do have that particular disease, so it becomes a discover, discoverable disease that's afflicting you, and instead of guesswork, it's, it's, uh, it's using probabilities to figure out what your, and that's what is happening anyway with an expert is there's certain probabilities or pattern recognitions that he is using uh, to eliminate through process eliminate or deduction the sequence that could explain your symptoms 
And so, you know, that calibration sometimes takes time and multiple iterations to correctly understand. And so these are uh, um, the way that uh, we, we learn in medicine, but it could be now moving technology closer to the um, to the patient. And then you would then contact and they would have to understand someone who is trained in the molecular therapies and so there would be different divisions in the medicine that would have molecular therapy specialists who then could get you onto the molecular therapies for fixing um, the genetic problems that you may have. And I think that's going to be such a transformation in medicine that it's going to be quite uh, innovative in terms of, of uh, its impact on humanity. Okay, well, until then, study AI and molecular therapies.